Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Would y'all please stand with me in honor of the words of the Lord? Thank you. Well, the teaching text today comes from Psalm 106, verses 40 through 47, and they read, Therefore the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love, he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Father, Abba, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this opportunity and the folks who are here. Thanks for as we have come empty or full that you have led us and that you have provided the means for us to find existence here in this room. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would let loose the tongue and the mouth of John to um, speak your truths. And we pray that you would also um, provide ears, but moreover, lifestyles and lives and hearts and souls fertile to find seed and growth in this combination. In your name, Lord God, amen. Amen. You may be seated. There was a phenomenon sweeping the elementary school playgrounds of America in the early 1990s. Uh, There were kids who were, like, there was one activity that you did at recess. Kids were gathered around, huddled in little circles. Uh, How old are you guys? Okay, perfect. Now, no one else give them a hint. Do you guys have any idea what these are? Okay, can somebody help them out? These were called pogs. And people went bananas over pogs in the early 90s in elementary school. I I guess the story of pogs is that they were like these little cardboard discs that were at the top of your gallon of milk. And at some point, they started printing little labels on them. And this was how toy companies taught children to gamble. (laughs) (laughs) And so you would order pogs by like the hundreds, get them in these tubes. How many people have pogs in an attic somewhere? Okay. So, well, that's really funny. So these pogs would have these great designs, and what you would do is, you know, any number of people could play, you would wager a certain number of pogs, and you would stack them with the the printed side up on the ground. Now, the real X factor in playing pogs was you you had to have a decent slammer. Now, if I took this little plastic slammer onto the playground at Jinx West Elementary, I would have been the laughingstock of the school because this is a pansy slammer. But if you carried in one of those heavy metal slammers that had some, like, girth to it, like, people respected you. There was serious street cred if you had a metal or, like, a heavy wood slammer. 
And what you would do is you'd, you'd gather them all up, and then the, the proper tournament rules for pogs was you held the slammer between your second and your third finger, and you would throw it down onto the pile, and whatever flipped up and turned over, you won. And you had to determine if you were playing for keeps, if you were just playing for fun. But like pogs is for people who are like living life on the edge. So you're always playing for keeps. You could not convince me in 1993 that pogs were not awesome. They were the coolest thing in the world. Now you get a couple decades removed and you think, what on earth were we thinking? It's kind of like Jinkos. Do you remember Jinkos? This is not a denim skirt on a man. These are jeans with ridiculously wide legs. These were the Jinko mammoths. And when I was in sixth grade, you were seriously a bad boy if you were wearing some Jinkos. Uh, another, another favorite of the 90s was Beanie Babies. People went bonkers over Beanie Babies. People are like running others over to get the collector's edition Beanie Babies, these little animals that were $5. In the moment... Pogs and Jinkos and Beanie Babies made a ton of sense. But when you get, and I mean, they were like irrefutably awesome in that time period, but you move just a little bit outside of that emotional bubble and you think, what on earth were people thinking? Kind of makes you worry, what is our current version of Pogs or Jinkos that we all think is really cool? It occurred to me that lots of people have a Pog philosophy of life. They have a grid or a framework for thinking about how to make wise decisions that in this moment feels irrefutably true. It makes so much sense, it is undeniable. But when when difficulty comes, and over the course of time, that philosophy or that framework for making wise decisions proves to be utter folly. This year, we've been going through uh, the year of the Bible. We started in January going through the book of Genesis. And the reason we've been slowly making our way methodically through the Bible is because we don't want to be the kind of people who have a pog philosophy of life. Jesus described these people as people who built their house on the sand, contrasting it with a person who builds his house on the rock. When the storm comes and the floods beat against the foundation, the person whose house was built on the rock can stand. And so we want to be the kind of people, the kind of people who are shaped by the gospel, who are building our life on a trustworthy foundation, not a pog philosophy of life that is in vogue in the moment, but will not be able to stand up with the test and the endurance of years. And so in January, we started with Genesis. We've preached on nearly every book in the Old Testament. Uh, I believe in the end, we've preached on like 32 out of 39 or something like that. And today marks a hinge in our year because today is our last, converse, our last focused conversation on the Old Testament, and next week we're going to begin the New Testament, glory to God. <laughs> so today what I want to do is, is give an overview of the New Testament in 30 minutes. It's going to be fun. The Old Testament is comprised of 39 books compared to the New Testament, which is just 27 books. Uh, the Old Testament it was written by different authors in different time periods in two different languages. We have Hebrew and Aramaic uh, in different genres, but all of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell the story of God, to tell the story of salvation. I want to give you a little insight into the composition of the Old Testament. It's 929 chapters, 
23,214 verses and 622,700 words. Let's compare that to the New Testament. New Testament is 260 chapters, 7,959 verses, 184,600 words or so, which tells us the Old Testament makes up about 77% of our Bible. When I did this by page number alone in my paper Bible, it got 78% tells us the overwhelming majority of our Bibles is Old Testament, which is slightly vexing because the Old Testament is almost entirely neglected in the preaching of the 21st century Western church, where we we focus on that last little bit in the New Testament. But I'm calling for a comeback of the Old Testament. That's why we've dedicated eight months of this year to studying the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the ultimate origin story. In the last couple of years in American culture, we are obsessed with origin stories, especially of superheroes. We love prequels, and the Old Testament is the ultimate prequel, certainly to the, to the story of Jesus, to the coming of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately to the renewal of all things. If we want to know where we're going, we need to know where we've been. It anchors us in where we are right now, and so we've dedicated this year slowly going through the Old Testament so far. In the next couple of minutes, I'm going to give a snapshot of how it's organized, and then I want to tell the story of the Old Testament in five scenes, and then I want to share with you some of the questions that leave, just remain hanging in the air as the Old Testament comes to a close, some of those cliffhanger plot lines that remain unresolved. Uh, But before I do, if you're a person who would love to take a deeper dive in understanding the Old Testament, a fabulous book that's really accessible, though it's written by a scholar, is it's called The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. It is it is really fabulous and it'll help you make sense of the Old Testament. Hopefully we've made some progress this year, but here's another tool. As it was being originally organized, the Old Testament was not printed in books, but written in scrolls. And though it's composed of 39 books, those 39 books were originally put into these three large scrolls that went under the Hebrew acronym Tanakh, Tanakh. And each of the letters stands for a section. The T stood for Torah, uh, which just meant instruction uh, or was referred to as the law. Uh, The the Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the theological and historical foundation for the people of Israel. Uh, The next, uh, the N in Tanakh was Nevi'im, which refers to prophets. And it's not just prophets as you might think of it, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. They broke up the prophets into what they called the former and the latter prophets. The former were what we would consider historical books, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And they regarded these as a prophetic interpretation of Israel's own history. The former prophets were some of the books we'd call historical books. The latter prophets are what we think of when you say prophets. The the big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then from from Hosea to Malachi, there were 12. And something I've not heard before, an interesting idea is some people think that the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, correspond with the three patriarchs of, of Israel in Genesis, the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from Hosea to Malachi, these 12 minor prophets correspond to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the Nevi'im. 
And then finally, we have K, the ketuvim, which simply means writings. Sometimes it was referred to, the whole section or the scroll, by its largest book, which was the Psalms. This is the ketuvim. The writings are, are, are what you might call wisdom literature, poetic literature. We have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We also have some, some books that we would have probably think of as historical books. Daniel is in there. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are all in there. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And I share all of this to point out that while we have 39 books written by different authors in different time periods in two different languages... By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we also have one unified story that's intended to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to consider Jesus' own words after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24. He said to his disciples, look, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Where? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the Torah, in the Nevi'im, in the Ketuvim. Episode 1, episode 2, episode 3, leading to episode 4, the next part in the story. Cheesy, but also kind of awesome. A new hope. But we're not quite there yet. We're going to go back to the very beginning. Scene one of the story is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, God creates everything out of nothing. God speaks and life explodes into being. The author of Genesis in in 1 and 2 is not chiefly concerned with describing for Western thinking scientific minds the how behind creation, but is chiefly concerned with identifying the who behind creation and the intent of that who behind creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see in the created world there's order and yet there's wildness. There's order, but there's, there's unity, but there's not uniformity. There are opposites and there are contrasts, but they're held together in perfect mutual submission. Where there are seas, there are sea creatures. Where there are skies, there are birds. Where there's land, there's plant life, and there's animal life. And at the apex of creation, at the second part of day six of creation, according to Genesis chapter one, God creates man and woman in his image. And man and woman, unlike the rest of the world, animal life and plant life that God created, man and women were designed to rule God's world on God's behalf. They were to submit to God's rule as they ruled the earth on God's behalf. In every aspect of creation, plant and animal life, at the microscopic level, the sun and the moon and the stars, the work that God assigned for men and women to do, the two genders that God created, the sexual instinct that God put in men and women, all of this, he said, is good, 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 and very good. And in the beginning, God is delighted with the world that he made. And it matters to know that the God who is the architect behind all of creation intended things to go well, 
designed things for our flourishing, that against the cosmology of other religions in the ancient Near East who thought that this world was the happenstance of war, our world was designed for the glory of God and the flourishing of the men and women and the animals and the plants and the stars, all of this that God designed. It tells us that our world was not a mistake, therefore we are not mistakes. And you think about the, Steve, the, the, the principle of Stephen Covey that begin with the end in mind. That he who began well intends to end this story well. And so in the middle of this story, we have cause for hope. But things didn't stay well for very long, which leads us to scene two of the story. Scene two, rebellion. In the garden, there were two trees. One was the tree of life. The other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And while God gave humanity free reign, rule the earth on my behalf, there was one rule. There was one exception. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, there will be devastating consequences. We're also introduced to this character in, in, the, in the early Genesis story, a serpent whose background we are not told in the story, but whose purpose is to deceive and to thwart the plans of God, to deceive humanity, pitting them against their creator. Eve in the garden and Adam encounter the serpent who says, did God really say? Begins to question God's word and make them so seeds of doubt. Also began to question God's motivation. God just doesn't want you to be happy. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And though deceived, Adam and Eve make a choice of their own volition. They saw the fruit, saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. They took the fruit and they ate the fruit. There's part of us that thinks, what's the big deal? You can probably squeeze that amount of toothpaste back in the tube. But there's the act, and there's what the act represents, the significance of that event. The significance of that is not, event is not limited to just what their body is processing. The food itself, it, it represented usurping God's authority. It represented Adam and Eve making this arrogant claim that we know better than God how to define right and wrong for ourselves. And when they did, things went haywire. Adam and Eve refused to rule under God's rule. They would set themselves up as rulers. And as a result, there's shame in the world. Body shame is one of the first things we see. They're estranged from one another. They're estranged from God. Adam is blaming Eve. Eve is falling to pieces. One of the principal qualities we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is violence multiplies on the earth. And there are people who take pride in their violence. We ask the question, you know, why do bad things happen? As a result of, of humanity's initial choices to define right and wrong for ourselves, the consequences have been spiraling out of control. It shows up in natural evil. We have mudslides, we have earthquakes, we have tornadoes, we have tsunamis, we have poison ivy, we got stickers. The earth that we were intended to rule under God's rule has turned against us. It's hard to get, to get plants that we can eat from the ground. This natural evil that has multiplied over many, many lifetimes. There's also moral evil. That the choices that we make, a snowball, and the effects have been catastrophic. 
And so we live in this world in, in which the consequences of evil are bouncing around like a million bouncy balls in a racquetball court, indiscriminately taking people out. And we find ourselves joining in the mayhem of this world. Why do bad things happen? It's seen too what happened in the garden. In the end, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, barring them from the tree of life. And it turns out this was a merciful consequence. Because they no longer had access to the tree of life, they would ultimately die so that their evil would not multiply and compound forever. God created humans to rule the world, but now humans are the problem. We need a new kind of human. What's God going to do? We get a cryptic hint in this curse that God pronounces on the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity or rivalry between you and the woman, between your offspring, we're going to hear that word a lot, and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This leads us to scene three, covenant. Covenant is a churchy word. It's a, it's a word that you probably heard a ton. In the ancient Near East, it was not, uh, not limited to religious usage. Covenants were a super common thing. Now, the most typical version of a covenant was between a suzerain, a lord, and their vassal, their servant. And they were always terms to a covenant. Look, I will give you military assistance if you will provide me a certain percentage of your crops. And there were always consequences to a covenant. If you fail to uphold your end of the bargain, the, the, the consequences are spelled out in the covenant. And while covenants were really common, it was uncommon, it was very rare for a nation to have a covenant with their God. And in the Old Testament, repeatedly, God initiates covenants with his people. There's a covenant with Noah. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Noah almost immediately breaks his end of the bargain. One of the most significant covenants that we see in the Old Testament comes in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 when God calls a guy named Abram. This is God's words to Abram. Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It can also be translated through your seed. God made a promise to this barren couple, Abram and Sarai, I'm going to turn you into a people, a nation. My presence is going to go with you. I'm going to bless the people who bless you and curse the people who curse you. I'm going to open doors and I'm going to close the ones you don't need to go through. I'm going to give you a place, a land where my name will dwell. And I'm also going to give you a purpose. You are going to be a blessing to all the nations through your seed. All of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We turn a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 15. And like the story of Noah, where we're given a sign of the covenant, God wants to enact this covenant with a formal ceremony. I have a creepy picture of it here, where God gave particular instructions to take these animals and to cut their carcasses down the middle. And just like we have the center of the pews here, on either side would be the, the, the bodies 
of these animals, starting with great ones and then ending with the birds at the very back. And typically what would happen in this kind of covenant enactment ceremony is the lesser of the two parties, the vassal or the servant, was to pass through the animals as if to say, if I break the terms of the covenant, may I be like this animal. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram falls into a deep sleep that God has caused him to fall into. And Abram has this vision where he sees the animals who have been cut into a wide open and a smoking fire pot representing the presence of God goes between the animals. This is counter to everyone's expectations because it's not the lesser but the greater of the two parties saying, if this covenant is broken by you or by me, it will be over my dead body. God is saying the curses and the consequences for breaking the covenant will fall not on his people but on himself. God indeed blessed Abraham. He had Isaac. They had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. There's famine in the land that God gave them, and they go down to Egypt. You remember the story of Joseph in in Genesis 37 through 50? Uh, They're they're blowing up. They're, They're having children out the wazoo. They're multiplying like rabbits, enjoying the favor of God, until a king comes to power who no longer knows Joseph. In the nation of Israel, now a nation, a people that had been blessed by God are living under in slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt. And for 400 years, four centuries, the people of God are living in slavery in Egypt until ultimately God hears their cry for mercy. And it had been so long that people no longer knew the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so God, through these mighty acts of power, was reintroducing himself both to his people of Israel, but also establishing dominance over the gods of the Egyptians. And so God raises up Moses to be this deliverer who leads them out through the Red Sea on dry land. They go to Horeb, the mountain of God, where God shows up in smoke and fire and gives to his people his law. These 613 commands about how to live differently and shine brightly among the nations that had overtaken the land that God had promised Abraham. Another covenant. But immediately, even there at the base of the mountain, the people proved unable, unable to obey the covenant. At the base of the mountain where God is appearing in smoke and fire, they're breaking it and making a golden calf. They leave from the mountain and and wander through the wilderness for 40 years where again and again they test the patience of God and they disobey God's command. They get to the border of the Jordan and Moses dies. Joshua takes up the helm. They go into the land and conquest and drive out many of the other nations, but they adopt the gods of many of the nations and idolatry becomes a stumbling block from, from Israel throughout the rest of their story. In time, they, they plead with God to give them a king so that they could be like the other nations and ultimately God raises up a king after his own heart in the person of David. David who had such a great beginning and served God so humbly. There's a moment where after David had vanquished all of his enemies, he's living in a palace while the presence of God is shacking up in this tabernacle. And David says to God, let me build you a temple, a house for your name to dwell. And this is God's response to the prophet Nathan. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house, a dynasty for you, David. 
When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom through this bloodline. He's the one who will build a house for my name. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. This began to raise hopes for a coming son of David. Not one who would rule just for his lifetime or until someone ousted him, but one who would rule forever. But David's sons and their sons largely ignored the commands of God and did not follow in the footsteps of their father, David. Their wickedness and their idolatry continued and ultimately led to the greatest consequence, which leads us to scene four, exile. God sent prophet after prophet to warn the people, repent, repent, change what you're doing or you're going to lose everything. But the people did not repent. In 722, the kingdom of Assyria came in and wiped out the 10 northern tribes at the time known as Israel. In 587 and 586, the kingdom of Babylon came in and exiled the influencers and the leaders and the poets and the the, uh, artisans of the community and took all of their leadership, gutted them, and took them 700 miles across the desert to Babylon where they were going to be acculturated into the gods and the culture of the Babylonians. They said, we sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept. But God hadn't given up. God continued to send prophets both to warn his people, but also to give them hope. Hope like we see through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 11. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to gather you from the nations, and I'm going to bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it. They will remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I'll give them an undivided heart, and I'll put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and then they'll follow my decrees. They'll be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. After 70 years in exile, God mercifully provides for their return, which leads to scene five, return. God brings the people back. There's the beautiful story of Nehemiah and the people rebuilding the walls. There's Ezra calling people back to observe the law. There's Zerubbabel who rebuilds the temple. And this is, a, this is an incredible moment with such precedence in Scripture. When the people originally built the tabernacle and they dedicated it, the presence of God came and showed up in Shekinah glory, and the people fell face down. And when Solomon had built the temple and they dedicated it, the glory of God came and people were, fell on their knees in awe and worship. Now they've returned from exile in Zerubbabel and the people are ready to dedicate the temple and their expectations are up. And then nothing happens. And the elders who remember the former glory of Solomon's temple weep. The people are back from exile, but it seems that their hearts are still exiled. The people are back in the land, but their hearts are still wandering in the desert. And it feels like that presence that had guided them 
was gone, and they've blown it in fulfilling their purpose to be a blessing to all the nations. Now they find themselves subjugated to the nations. First it was the Assyrians, and then it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Medes and Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it became the Romans. And God's people are living in the land, but God's presence sure doesn't feel like it's with them, and they are not fulfilling their purpose. Their hearts are still hard. And for 400 years, it feels like God goes on mute. You ever feel like that? It feels like maybe God said, you know what? Maybe I need to go find another chosen people and work with them. It feels like that prophetic voice has been silenced. Maybe God has given up. And in the silence and in the waiting, God's people begin to scour their own story. They begin to look back on the Torah and the the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim for signs and hints and evidence, whispers of hope, cause for confidence, but they only come up with questions. Where's that offspring of Eve who's going to crush the serpent but himself be wounded in the process? When's God going to make a new kind of human that's equipped to co-rule the world? How and when is God going to deliver his people through the son of Abraham? How's God going to deliver his people from slavery to sin because we clearly can't deliver ourselves? We're trapped. What on earth does it mean that God is going to suffer the consequences for our breaking of the covenant? Where is this son of David who's going to come and is going to rule with an everlasting dynasty? When is God going to replace our hearts of stone and mysteriously put his spirit in us? When is God going to end our spiritual exile? When will God's presence be among us again? Because that temple's empty. When's God going to overthrow our enemies and establish his kingdom on earth? And how on earth are we ever going to get back to the garden? And they wondered and they waited. And some begin to catch on to the idea that God had a secret, a mystery kept hidden for ages and generations. And he gave him clues along the way like cookie crumbs leading to the, the, the big payoff. There were clues, there were images, there were shadows, there were shapes of what to come, but they couldn't possibly guess what it was going to look like. And we see over the course of time how God was slowly and patiently and brilliantly composing a story that was about to reach its climax just when people were going to give up hope. And so it's with humility and with amazement and with wide eyes that when we turn from Malachi to the Gospel of Matthew, we see this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. A new hope is dawning. 
And in reflecting on the brilliance and the wisdom of God, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could have guessed that this is how he would save the world? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The response and reflecting on the brilliance of God in writing this story is worship. Wow. I love Tolkien. I love Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings books, but I love them because they rhyme with this. I love them because they make my heart ache for the deeper and the truer story that God has been authoring since before the foundations of the world. People were aching for God's promises to be revealed at the coming of the time of Jesus. And we're aching now. But by looking back on our own story, we see he who was faithful to his promises in the past will be faithful today and will be faithful forever. And in the coming weeks and months in our church, we're going to throw ourselves headlong into studying the mystery and the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have lost the plot in your spirituality... If you've gotten kind of like confused in the mess of religion and church, what a beautiful opportunity and an invitation to reset your spiritual operating system by syncing up with the person of Jesus Christ. And beginning on Saturday when we begin our readings in the Gospel of Matthew and through the middle of October, we're just saturating ourselves in the Gospel. We'll read Matthew, we'll read Mark, we'll read John, we'll read Luke and Acts together. This is an invitation for us to just like do a gospel cleanse of our systems and to to, to purge everything that does not look like Jesus. I want to invite you. I want to challenge you. If we lost you back in the book of Numbers along with the people of Israel, now's a great time to catch up to the wagon, to hitch on. Um, This is going to be something powerful and beautiful that God does among us as we fix our eyes and saturate ourselves in the story of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's central to our mission as a church to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And as a community, we want to do this together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in, in response to the beauty of your story, we honor you and we worship you. You're the one who stomped on the head of the serpents. You are the son of David. You are the son of Abraham. You are the true temple. You are the true sacrifice. You are the true priesthood. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. You're the one through whom you are remaking the heavens and the earth, the one by whom we receive the spirit of God so that we can be adopted into the Father's family and our spirit will cry out, Abba, Father, Lord Jesus, because of what you've done, we can be adopted into the family, made a co-heir with Christ, restored with our purpose in the world to co-rule the world with you. Jesus, we honor you. We love you. We worship you. 
and yet we don't think nearly so highly about ourselves because we are fickle and we are forgetful. We lack faith. It's sometimes hard to believe in your promises, those things that happened all so long ago. We say with Habakkuk, Lord, we've heard of your fame and we stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day. Renew in our minds and our hearts the beauty of the gospel. Make the person of Jesus Christ known to us. Stir up our faith. Spur us on to action. Help us to have a rediscovery of the power of the gospel and help us to shine brightly as a community in the city of Tulsa and in the world. And as we gather around your table, Lord Jesus, we say thank you for what you've given us, that you give us your very life and breath. You feed us from your hand the nourishment we need to follow you. And I pray as we come to the table that you give us a special assurance today that you love us and that in this world that you love, you are still working for good and you who began well will end well and your desire is to supply us and equip us to middle well now as we wait for your coming kingdom. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.